We are continuing our sermon series called Wreck the Roof. And maybe after the announcement that I gave just a few minutes ago, you're thinking, well, you're wrecking something, but uh, I don't know if it's the roof or not. Um, That's fair. I get that. But that's not what this series is about at all. This series is really taking a look at the early church and how the people, the believers, the first followers of Jesus Christ were willing to do anything, even wreck the roof, to get their friends, to get people in front of Jesus so they could see the way Jesus transforms lives. Last week we heard the story about some friends of a man who'd been lame for a long, long time, and they had an obstacle in front of them, a crowd around a house, and no way to get their friend in to see Jesus for healing. And so they decided to wreck the roof and tear the roof off and lower him down, and he was healed. And Jesus was turning the world upside down. These first believers were turning the world upside down. And so they make a great example for us today. You know, when you have things in life that come up, like these staff changes I talked about, it can be easy to see those kinds of things as obstacles. And they might make us sad, because let's face it, we have a great staff here at Anderson Hills, tied together in unity, working well together, and I appreciate everything that each and every staff member does. And as people, we don't like obstacles, do we? Because we see obstacles as something to get in our way, something to slow us down. But what if we began to look at change from a different perspective? In other words, seeing change as something other than an obstacle. What if we could see change as an opportunity? You know, our world typically thinks about opportunities as fortunate or or favorable circumstances that, that give you a chance to get ahead in life, often getting rich or maybe even famous. Favorable conditions for personal success or advancement. I thought I had an opportunity like that after my junior year of college. I came home for the summer and I was looking for a summer job. Now, I have to tell you that the year was 1982, and if you're old enough to remember that time period, we were in a big, big recession then. Jobs were not easy to come by, to say the least. But I was looking at an ad in the newspaper, that also dates how old I am, right, to look for a job in the newspaper, and I saw a job that said I could make a lot of money selling vacuum cleaners. (laughs) You know where this is going already. But um, I answered that ad, and I was hired immediately. Like, on the spot, I was hired. And so I spent my first week in training with all the other new hires, learning everything we could about this amazing advanced vacuum cleaner that I would be selling, honing my sales pitch and getting ready. And then the second weekend, or the second week, uh, we were to practice our pitch on our friends and family. And amazingly, those people are still my friends today. I'm not sure why, but um, we practiced that pitch. And so week three comes around, and I start selling to customers who had been prearranged. They had an appointment um, through the company's sales team to have their carpets cleaned. Now, I didn't know what the pitch of the, the sales team was in setting up these appointments. I thought they were setting me up with people who wanted to buy a vacuum cleaner. 
Well, after the third person kicked me out of their house, because they were expecting me to like shampoo their carpets, to really clean their carpets, and I thought I was just supposed to vacuum one room of their house. Well, the third person kicked me out, and I realized that I was never going to earn any money that year, and I needed some money to take back for my senior year of college. I knew I was going to be proposing to Marge around Christmas time of that same year. I needed money to buy her a ring so she would say yes to me. And so I drove back to the company. I turned in the vacuum cleaner, and I quit right there. I was young. I was naive. I learned a valuable lesson. If it sounds too good to be true, it's probably too good to be true. (laughs) But you see, that's the way the world sees opportunity. To do whatever you can do to set yourself up to win and win big. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about watching for kingdom opportunities. We're talking about watching for opportunities where God can use us to introduce other people to Jesus. And here's the thing that might seem kind of backwards, but kingdom opportunities are often disguised as earthly opposition. Kingdom opportunities are often disguised as earthly... uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Opposition. Rough morning, you guys. Well... If you look at the situation in the book of Acts, the early church, they saw obstacles as opportunities. They saw things that we might call obstacles, and they instead saw them as opportunities. And one of the obstacles that the early church faced was, how were they going to help poor people, especially the poor that were in Jerusalem? Because you see, back in that day, in in the time right after Jesus, there wasn't the kind of government assistance that we have today. There was no such thing as welfare. There was no such thing as food stamps or, or any of the programs that we have today. Instead, faithful people brought money to the temple, and then the Jewish leaders would use it to help support widows and, and orphans and those who were need in need. But what happened was when some of those early Jews began to put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and became Christians, they risked losing the financial support through the temple or the synagogue. And Acts 2 gives us a picture of how the early church decided to respond to that obstacle. This is happening right after the day of Pentecost. So the church is brand new. And so we get to see how the Holy Spirit, uh, how the power of the Holy Spirit is at work changing people in those earliest days of the church. I'm going to be reading today from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. I mean, that's a picture of an amazing church, right? We see people who want to spend time together. They want to hang out together. They, They eat together. They center their lives around the word of God as the apostles are teaching it. And God is moving in in miraculous ways through the apostles. I mean, that sounds like a great church to be a part of. 
And being a part of this church actually began to lead to radical change in the lives of the people who were a part of it. I'm picking back up in verse 44, where it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he or she had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Sometimes we read that passage and we say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That is not normal behavior. These early Christians lived very, very unselfishly because they took Jesus' words seriously. And so it began to impact the way they did everything, even the way they spent their money. And I think for us as American Christians, this is often about the time our eyebrows kind of go up a little bit and we begin to say what are they really saying here because the truth of the matter is we benefit greatly from our system of capitalism in fact money is one of the most important things that the average american has to think about and talk about and work for all their lives and so we sometimes get really nervous when when people begin to talk about our money But the other part of that truth is when a person encounters Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit begins to change his or her life. And so it just makes natural sense that part of that life that's going to be transformed is the way we look at money, our views of money. You know, one of the best ways to understand our own spiritual life is to look at the way we spend our money. That tells you where a person's priorities are. You've probably heard it said, show me your calendar and show me your checkbook and I can tell you what's really most important in your life. Yes, verses 44 and 45 are some of the most controversial verses in the book of Acts. So let's read them again. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. And I think the reason that this is so controversial, I can't tell you the number of times people have asked me about this over my years in ministry, is because it begins to sound like communism, doesn't it? Where there's no private ownership at all. Where all the property, all the wealth is owned by the government. The government decides everything. The government distributes the wealth, or as we often see, it doesn't distribute the wealth in that system. And most of us in America hate that idea. I don't like that idea either. I'm not raised that way. We want our own houses, don't we? We want to make our own decisions about what kind of job we're going to have, where we're going to live. We want to manage our own money. And so you ask yourself this question, what's up with these verses? What is Luke trying to tell us? Is God a communist? I have good news for you. God is not a communist. I'll cut right to the chase there. But imagine this, totally hypothetical. You get an email or a letter in the mail from Pastor John Ferguson later this week. 
And he says this, you know, we studied the book, the second chapter of Acts this week on what it, become, what it looks like to be a New Testament church, and that's what we want to be at Anderson Hills. And so we're going to start practicing some of these economic policies found in Acts 2. And all you need to do is sell all your possessions this week, sell it right away, and then next Sunday, bring all your funds, all your finances, everything, all your money to the church. And we've also, by the way, for your convenience, arranged for your paycheck to be automatically deposited into the church's checking account. Won't that be convenient? And they've also appointed uh, our executive pastor, Mark Putman, who's going to handle all the distribution of money and possessions. He's going to assign you a new house. He's going to um, give you what money you're going to need to live on. And then it signs, sincerely, Pastor John. You'd, I don't know what you'd do. I don't know what I'd do if I got a letter like that in the mail. It would raise a lot of questions, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd think about, what kind of house am I going to get? Where am I going to live? What kind of job am I going to have? How much money am I going to be given? And why is Pastor Mark suddenly driving a brand new red Ferrari? You know, that's crazy. By the way, that's a pretty sweet looking ride, isn't it? My car does not look anything like that. It's so funny. I mean, talk about the prosperity gospel. That is not what we are about here at Anderson Hills at all. And you might also ask yourself, how come I only get this moped and I have to drive somebody else to work too? In all seriousness, we need to understand how Luke, who is the man that God inspired to write both the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, um, what he means here. And it's important for us to know that he's using here um, a literary device that's called a summary passage. In other words, he's trying to give a big picture view of what is happening in the early church. You see, summary passages speak generally. They paint re with really broad brushstrokes. And we do the same thing sometimes, don't we? For example, if a friend walked up to you and said, how was your week this week? And you said it was really stressful. You wouldn't mean that every second of every day this past week was stressful. Maybe you had one or two stressful days or one thing that was happening at work that was really stressful or one thing in your family. But the rest of the days were pretty good. We're using a summary passage. We're painting in broad brush strokes. And that's what Luke is doing. He's painting a picture of the early church with broad brushstrokes. He's summarizing the way that some of the people were acting some of the time. He doesn't mean that no one owned any property. He doesn't mean that no one ever left the presence of other people. They weren't always in one big house together breaking bread and studying scripture. He's telling us that they were unselfish with their possessions He's telling us that they were consistently looking for opportunities to be generous instead of selfish. That they willingly and regularly made personal sacrifices. And that's pretty unnatural, isn't it? I mean, it's not our usual human behavior. All you have to do is ask any parent or remember back to when you were a parent of a two-year-old, right? That's mine, <laughs> mine, 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 I want that. That's my toy, I want it. That's my room, I shouldn't have to clean it if I don't want to. That is my possession, and I'm not going to share it. But when we give our lives to Jesus, things should change, and we should become less selfish. 
back to those summary verses for a second. I want to explain why these verses don't mean that God is a communist. First of all, some translations of the Bible make a small but very significant mistake in the way they translate verse 45. It says this. In the original language in which Acts was written, it says, they kept on selling. It does not say they sold. And that verb tense makes it very clear what was happening. Think about it. If I sold all of my property, then all of my property is gone once I've sold it, right? If I have an estate sale and I sell everything, including my house, then I don't own anything anymore. But if I have the ability to keep on selling possessions whenever there's a need of someone in my life, and if I refuse to be selfish and, and hoard all my things, when I see a need, I can do what I need to do in order to generate money to help someone in need, maybe even selling some of my possessions. We also know that the early church members absolutely owned private property, because Luke tells us in other places in Acts about Christians who sold property and gave part or all of their money to the leaders of the church so they could distribute it. So they hadn't all done that at once. I mean, if they had already sold all of the property when they joined the church, they wouldn't have anything left to sell, right? No, these early Christians were always looking for opportunities to build the kingdom so that their generosity was a natural, unprompted response to the Holy Spirit. Some years ago, before I was called into ministry and Marge and I were living in Dayton, we had friends, uh, they were a couple, and they um, lived in Kettering, but they also owned um, a vacation home, a weekend home, down on Barren River Lake in K southern Kentucky. Uh, Marge and I were blessed to go down there a couple of times. Um, they would have some weekend gatherings sometimes. They had a boat on the lake. And I remember, though, they went to a church um, in Kettering, and their church was having um, a stewardship um, um, fundraising drive um, so they could expand their reach, so they could expand their ministry, so they could expand the kingdom and reach more people for Jesus. And I'll never forget that it made such an impression on me at the time that Dave and Kathy decided what they were being called to do by God was to sell that vacation home and give all the money to the church. And I thought, that is radical. That is, I wouldn't have used this term at the time, but that's wrecking the roof. That's really tearing it off to do some work for God. Because you see, members of the kingdom of God radically challenge the status quo. The early church members had such a strong desire for charity that they wouldn't tolerate any need of any person in the church. You see, love was the motivating, driving force for all that they did. And while money was important in this, of course, it was only a part of it. Because, you know, God has blessed us with so many resources, not just money, but with so many resources. He's given you talents. He's given you passions. He's given you gifts. He's given you relationships and so much more that you can use to help other people. And so the question always is, are we watching for opportunity to use those things to build God's kingdom or are we just watching for opportunities to further our own kingdom? I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at the problems of the world and I get overwhelmed. I begin to think, what can I do? I'm just one little person, one man in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
And the obstacles in our world seem so much bigger, so complicated, that sometimes I freeze and I don't look for opportunities. But you see, the thing is, God doesn't call you to solve all of the world's problems. God calls you to be a good steward of the opportunities that God puts in your life. And that's all you have to worry about. You see, the Holy Spirit speaks to you. The Holy Spirit nudges you to follow God's call in your life. And sometimes it's little things, and sometimes it's big things. We just need to keep looking for the opportunities. I'm illustrating this morning from a financial perspective, because that's how Acts chapter 2 does it here. But when we talk about watching for opportunities, just remember that I'm talking about much more than just money. God can use you in so many ways. But we have to be realistic and honest and truthful. Financially, God has been so good to us. Amen? He's given us so much. Let me just share a few facts with you. Every single person in this room, every single person in North America, actually, lives within the top 5% of the world's wealth. You might be a millionaire, you might be on welfare, but in this country, you are wealthier than 95% of the rest of the world. Some statistics came out a few years ago that um, shared that one out of every six people in the world lives on less than a dollar a day, and that half of the world's population, that's about three and a half billion people, live on less than two dollars a day. Now, the average poor person in the United States lives on roughly $25 a day. Now, I absolutely understand that is not very much money if you live in the United States, and I absolutely know that poor people in the United States are faced with many, many hardships. That isn't much to live on. But when compared to the rest of the world, we're wildly wealthy. I want you to hear me carefully. You might be thinking to yourself, so is it a sin to make a lot of money? No, it isn't. I want to share with you a quote. This is uh, something that I've remembered for a long time from our founder, the founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, used to say this. He said, make all you can so that you can save all you can, so that you can give all you can. You see, it's a relationship, the way we look at money, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with having money. Remember, Jesus once put it this way in Luke 12, 48. He said, much is required from those to whom much is given, and much more is required from those to whom much more is given. And so within this room this morning, I know there's a variance in wealth, but we all, every single one of us, has one thing in common. God has entrusted us with much more than the majority of the world has. And so our responsibility level is also very high, isn't it? It's often said that money can't buy happiness, and that's absolutely true. We know that. But money does open the door for opportunities, doesn't it? If you have more money, then you have more opportunities to do good work for the kingdom with those funds. 
Now, you might be sitting here this morning and you might be thinking about people who have more money than you do and you start judging them in, their, in your own mind. Like, let them do something. Let them sell a boat or a yacht or something like that or a red Ferrari and <laughs> help out. But we have to resist that temptation. Again, God's not calling you to do everything. God's calling you to do what God is calling you to do with what God has given you. I want to think again about the global picture for a minute. A lot of work has really been done in the first part of this century to reduce global poverty in recent years, but there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. And that's one of the reasons that our church gives so much money to missions every year. We give about a quarter of a million dollars to missions every single year, which is absolutely amazing to me. I think about those statistics I talked about, about uh, the, the six people in the world. Imagine if you're a parent and you have six children. Just imagine that they're stationed right here in the church, uh, uh, in, across the front of the altar here. And you go to the grocery store and you buy your groceries for the week. According to these statistics, child number one and number two would eat about 80% of the food that you bring home for the week. Now, there's still four more kids that need to be fed, Right? According to these statistics, child number three and four would consume most of the rest of that 20%. Child number five would eat occasionally but would probably be malnourished and, and maybe not uh, have opportunities to learn or be slow in learning because of the uh, lack of nutrition. And child number six would probably have a stomach that's distended and, and would probably die of hunger. In fact, we know that every hour, in this hour that we're here in this sanctuary worshiping, about 900 children throughout the world will die from lack of food. And so we can hear statistics like that and think to ourselves, that's too big of an obstacle. What can I do about that? I might as well just leave it to the billionaires. That would be nice, but it's actually an opportunity. What we might see as an obstacle is really an opportunity for believers, for followers of Jesus, for this church, as a matter of fact. I've shared with you, um, we've shared with you from the platform that over the last 15 years of, of receiving our um, Christmas Eve offering for building water wells and, and, and teaching hygiene in Zambia, we've given about $1.2 million to do that. Praise God. That is amazing. There are thousands of people whose lives have been changed forever and ever because of that, and eternally because of that, because we use that as a platform to share about Jesus Christ, too. That's a big project, but we do so many other projects as well, including helping people right here in our community. We have an amazing group of men and women who are fighting hunger by working in a garden when the weather is warmer than it is today, a garden that's just down Forest Road at the edge of our property. We were able to expand it in recent years, and we are able to give, through their hard work and dedication, tons, hear me, tons of fresh produce to local food pantries. And fresh produce is some of the hardest, most expensive produce um, to, to uh, food to get when you are really struggling to put food on your table. 
That's one way that we help feed the poor in our area. We've also helped, as a church recently, we've helped Interparish Ministry, or IPM, um, build a brand new facility that'll expand their reach and help them reach more people who are impoverished and need food um, in the Eastgate and, and um, Eastern Hamilton County and Western Claremont County regions. Again, praise God, we're doing things that help people all over the world. Remember this, church, kingdom opportunities are often disguised as earthly opposition. Kingdom opportunities are often disguised as earthly opposition. So what opportunity might you have been missing because you're only seeing it as an obstacle? Chuck Swindoll once said this. He said, we're all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. Isn't that something to think about? You know, I believe fully that we will know that the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives when we start seeing earthly opposition as a divine opportunity to share Jesus with people that need to have Jesus shared with them. Let me share with you one more time as we close today the words that Jesus spoke, that he speaks to us today from Luke 12, 48. Much is required from those to whom much is given, and much more is required from those to whom much more is given. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks and praise for the example of the early church. And I give you thanks and praise for Anderson Hills Church. What an amazing group of believers we are. Yes, we look different than they did in the first century. But Lord, there are so many faithful men and women and children here who give so selflessly, not only of their financial resources, but of their time and their talents and their passions to really make a difference for your kingdom. God, forgive us for those times when we've been more likely to hoard and continue to help us to grow and be transformed into people who freely give, who look at obstacles and, and see them as opportunities to help build your kingdom here on earth. Lord Jesus, help us to look for ways to wreck the roof. Not only, um, well, really, don't help us do that um, um, physically, <laughs> but metaphorically, God, to rip off the roof, to bring our friends, our family members, even strangers, to the feet of Jesus Christ so that they can come to know him as Lord and Savior and that their lives can be transformed just like ours have been, just like ours are being transformed. And we can build your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. May it be so. And all God's people said, amen. amen.